Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. If you, right now, were given, if the committee came down and the committee said, we're going to give you a castle in Ireland or Spain, 50 people there to run it, and you'll never have to run anything in it. It's going to be perfect forever. And, and we're going to give you $100 million. And all the cooks and all the winemakers or bartenders you could want and I always say the first night you're there on the on the ridge on the terrace in a parapet is that some place you can sit <laughs> if at that moment when you uh, when you put your you have a a flagon of mead whatever that is <laughs> and you put your legs up on a, on a table and watch the sun setting over the Atlantic and just as you're about to think how relaxing this is, remember, part of this deal is you can never, ever be a performer again. <laughs> part of the deal is you can never, ever write stories again, write anything again, write jokes again, perform for people again. And that's a never. But look at what you get. And I always say, if you make that deal, you're the dumbest man in history. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Excited, to say the least. I'm going to give Larry Miller his due. As one of Hollywood's most recognizable faces, Larry Miller has appeared in over 100 films and television shows. He was born in Valley Stream, New York, know it well, and he began his career with a memorable scene alongside Richard Gere and Julia Roberts in the blockbuster film, one of my favorites of all time, Pretty Woman in 1990. He has since gone on to unforgettable roles in such films as The Princess Diaries, The Nutty Professor, B-Movie, and Ten Things I Hate About You, directed by Gil Younger, I believe. That's right. He's also a proud member of Christopher Guest Ensemble cast in the films Waiting for Guffman. Oh, boy. 
Should I say no more? Best in show, <laughs> a mighty wind, and for your consideration. Miller has made dozens of appearances on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno and also Johnny Carson, correct? Yes. The Late Show with David Letterman in real time with Bill Maher. And believe me, if you think a roast is hard, try doing real time with Bill Maher. That's another muscle entirely. He has also starred in his own HBO comedy specials and on Broadway and Neil Simon's hit play, The Dinner Party. His other television credits include, but not limited to, Desperate Housewives, Medium Burn Notice, Law and & Order, and a most memorable appearance as the vindictive doorman in the hit show Seinfeld. Miller currently hosts the well Respected and well listened to, always in the top 50 or 100 podcasts on iTunes, The Larry Miller Show, where he unleashes a barrage of humor about the absurdities of everyday life. Let me tell you something. You think a podcast is hard interviewing people? Try doing a podcast where you have no guests every fucking week and you kill it, and people tune in more and more, and it gets bigger and bigger every single week. In addition, he's a contributing humorist to the Huffington Post and the Weekly Standard, as well as the author of the best-selling book, Spoiled Rotten America. Miller frequently tours the country with his own one-person comedy show. I know you're going to like him a lot because I love him. Please welcome my guest, Larry Miller. Boy, I mean, sincerely, that's a that's a heck of an introduction. I mean, <laughs> that's even from heaven. My parents could look at each other and just go, well, that was pretty good. <laughs> well, we could arrange that. Is that what they said to you when you were younger, when you did something? Well, Larry, that was that was pretty good. <laughs> we had a great, great time. They were great parents. And I don't have a, a tough story about childhood. You have to have something because it's my belief, and you can shatter this belief, that in order for somebody to be as great as you are at comedy, acting, and writing, you had to have had a hole blown through you at some point in time in your life. What was that? Well, I for years I would have said, gee, I don't think so, but now I'm l looking back and inside and thinking... I must have had something. And, you know, it was a Little League paper out kind of neighborhood, and my parents were tough people and in the best sense of that. And they, uh, boy, they knew how to really get, get along and get by. There was nothing shy about them. You know, and there's a line in my act, in fact, about the, my, that my, my father had three jobs and went to school at night. If I go to the cleaners and the bank in the same day... I need a nap. <laughs> and that is a theme also is that everyone knows, you know, that our parents, you, you know, I have a theory that the parents are twice as tough as you and their parents were twice as tough as them. How that's even possible, I don't know. And the great grandparents, same thing, same thing, tough. And that's how we, by the way, that's how you, well, settle a country and make it and build it. You know, that art, they were all... Whenever they came to America, in this case, it was uh, my grandparents and then one generation before, but they were all such tough people. They would, you know, getting these wagons. I imagine sometimes, well, they, you know, they, they, could, they could be hitting the wagon at a boulder. Nothing stopped them. They just, the, the dad would just lean out and go, and just eat through it. You know, they would, just so tough. I imagine sometimes, seriously, going up to a, 
a covered wagon. Obviously, it's a, it's a, it's a, fa- it's a fantasy of where the family's ready to go. And they're even starting from somewhere in Ohio. And they, they're heading west. And that if you tapped your finger on that guy's shoulder, on, on the father's shoulder, and uh, he, he turned around, if you wanted to ask him something, what would that face look like when he turned around? And I think, I think it would be something we don't look like. That we don't act like that that we are not that it it would be it would be, so, it would be you know, something male, like just yeah, yeah be a male adult <laughs> you know just just tough as nails nothing stopped them I I think that's really laudable I think that's really so what was it what was the hole blown in me I, I I don't maybe maybe I don't know I think that we I was thinking before that we all had in in school we all had fights or fist fights and. But they never lasted very long. It wasn't like fights with guns or clubs or something. I was thinking back on a couple of those. Of the One of my friends, Billy Walsh, and I used to have a rule that we'll never run. And we weren't that tough. How old were you? Well, fighting time. This is 15 to 19 or something. Mm-hmm. I don't make this just sound the wrong way. We weren't. But we didn't. If there was a fight, we would always be. You could count on us. To at least be there, and hopefully, we always hoped, against their don't-want-to-run guy. But that doesn't work out that much. Yeah, but you just said for that particular thing that you weren't a guy who backed down with your friend. So you would fight, you would fist fight these people. Yeah, but we we didn't win a lot. (laughs) So you got the shit kicked out of you a lot. Well, yeah, but... uh, but again, it wasn't. Things didn't take that long. It wasn't like a, a fourteen-minute whooping. Now, Christopher Titus once said to me his advice to his son when he got beat up. He said, "Listen, it's what I want you to do. I want you to go back to school, and I want you to walk right up to the pe- person who beat you up, and I want you to rear back, and I want you to punch him in the face as hard as you can. Okay? And then what's going to happen next? You're going to get the." shit beaten out of you but that kid will never touch you again was that true of you when you got beat up no but that's a good story <laughs> I mean, it is and you want to say i'm sure everyone watching wants to say that sort of makes sense you know it doesn't sound like fatherly advice the way we well we it's christopher it. titus yeah, come on <laughs> but that's that sounds like a Good advice. I told my kids who were good athletes, and the uh, our older son is a Marine now, in fact. And uh, they're, they're, they're tough guys and great athletes. And I always t- told them, you know, even when you're afraid, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of, of hitting someone. That Don't be afraid of stepping up and saying that. Even if you don't like the things you're saying, step up and say it. And step up and acted on it. And if if someone hits you, hit back and just start punching like mad. And I've talked to some of their coaches. And uh, when somebody said this or that about one of my kids, the kid who's a Marine now, in fact. And I said, listen, I told him to uh, to make a slugfest out of it. So I just want you to know that. And uh, if this kid says that again, you know, he's going to, whether it's a dugout or a locker room. And uh, the coach said... Well, I feel the same way. It sounds good to me. And I wasn't looking for approval. I mean, I just wanted to let him know that if anything ever happened again, you know, that uh, 
my kid was going to be the one to help make it happen. Now, I feel like you were, I'm sorry to keep going back to the well, sure. but I feel like you were really close and on to something. I think there's something that you're getting at that could be really valuable to everybody listening. Good. And, I, and good for me, too. I would like to know. So let's go back to your growing up. Uh, okay. you're, you're growing up. You have how many brothers and sisters in your family? One older sister. And so you're there with your mom and dad. Do you live in a home that they bought? Do you rent? Does your parents rent? Is it like a situation where you're poorer than the rest of the people in your area? Or is it the kind of area where everybody's in the same boat? I would say roughly same boat. It was a house on Long Island. And as I mentioned before, Little League, paper out kind of place. And But for all the good in that, that's not putting it down. You know, there was a lot of uh, good routine that that we had. I never understood, even as a kid, when songwriters would make fun of or put their childhoods down or their parents down for, yes, it's the same, and then I know what they're going to say now, and it's really boring to be here, and I don't approve of this kind of childhood. And I always, even as a kid, I always said, you really ought to. You really ought to uh, approve because I don't think you're looking at it at all the right way. It's like with 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 dogs. Sometimes I think we make fun for years, years, decades of dogs always going over the top with their greetings when you come home. And I always felt, and I still feel, we're looking at it the wrong way. We should be like that. We should be like the dog. We should learn from the dog. That dog, our dog, gives such love greetings. When he comes home, and I always say to my kids and my wife, who don't do that, I always, I always want to say, and I, and I have said before, look at him. Look, Ozzy's doing great. He's, this is how you should live. This is how we should all live. So that every second of reuniting is like the first one. And uh, so I, I, I think, is there... I, I don't see any anything any any drawbacks in in that childhood. I guess I had the same fantasies as well, anyone I, be a soldier and I think you just hit on something and oh, yeah? I, I tell me if I'm wrong. Go ahead. From as early as you could remember until you graduated high school, is there a number of times that you could count that your dad told you he loved you? It's a good question. I uh, right off the bat I I don't know because I would always said, always have said, and still say, my parents are the most loving people in the world. I'm not sure. I can't necessarily recall any of any times or ways my dad, as you said, would would say that. I say it all the time. Maybe there's something in that. There is. And so that, to me, when I sit across from you... That's the whole. That's what shapes you as a comedian, because you said your dad worked three jobs. Yeah. When somebody works three jobs, <laughs> not a lot of attention given to you as a child, not a lot of love dished out, because there's so much pressure to put food on the table and keep a roof over their heads that... The thought of saying "I love you" is just an afterthought. He he has to know I he has to know I love him. So, you know, I, I I don't have the time, but he has to see the love from all the time I'm putting these jobs to help him survive here and have a good life or the best life possible. And so, probably the reason why stand up was so exciting to you was because not only did you get love, but the laughter. And when you combine that by a hundred people or 200 people or a thousand people, that's a lot of I love yous. Fair enough. I'm just thinking about that. I, 
the analogy you said with the dog is just b- brilliant, and I've never I've never had anybody say that to me, and I'm going to carry that with me for the rest of my life. It's just a great thing because I tell my children that I love them probably too much, but I have a feeling that you tell your children that you love them. Oh, yes. And, uh, oh, yes. I, I want to say something about the uh, stand-up in the audience that you mentioned before that you reminded me of. I could be wrong about this, and I don't say that lightly. It's not just lip service to me. But I could be wrong, but I've never seen it as the comedian gets love from the audience or the comedian wants love from the audience, and I could be wrong. A good comic tells the audience they should love themselves and that this moment, theatrically, when the lights go down, to me, the audience is... Suddenly, always children wearing polo shirts. And I think a a good comic or a great comic, no matter what the style is, is still essentially saying the lights are low now. The lights are low and come see what I've brought you. I've brought you some nice gifts. And I agree with that. I mean, I've been doing this too long. There's no one in my lifetime in this business that has ever said anything negative about you, ever. Oh, that's nice. That's very meaningful. When's the first thing that happens in your life that you see or that inspires you that says, you know, I'd love to get in this entertainment business? I think it was very early. I always thought it was great to be, well, a singer who moves people, a songwriter who moves people, the same with being a writer who wrote the script, who moves people. I thought that was good. I still think it is to be a storyteller. I use the word storyteller a lot because I think that's very powerful. Being a storyteller is a very is a very good, very holy thing to do. And uh, the first time, I remember my mom playing one of those... Uh, records on a record player. Now, there's a couple of words you might not hear a lot. <laughs> and, uh, but uh, records that were plastic, uh, orange records. They were not uh, small, not uh, not jukebox size records, but and I think one it was from uh, Tchaikovsky's Nutcracker Suite. And I, lo- I got the story of it. I loved the story of it and thinking, why? And he wrote this to get the story out. The music is beautiful. And for these, you know, for people to sing or to ba- to ballet dance to, so I I think it was then that was so that was early, five or six years old or seven, but it was probably before that. I've said this before that any time a comic has come up to me uh, and said over the years said, uh, you know what I've I've about had it with show business I've about <laughs> had it with uh, with comedy I'm you know what I I just. Uh, I would just like to get out, get something else, just get something easier. And I and I have said, every time this happened, and I mean it every time, I say that if you right now were given, if the committee came down from hearing you say this, and the committee said, we're going to give you a castle in Ireland or Spain, 50 people there to run it, and you'll never have to run anything in it. It's going to be perfect forever. And, and we're going to give you $100 million. And all the cooks and all 
the winemakers or bartenders you could want. And I always say the first night you're there on the on the ridge, on the terrace, in a parapet. Is that some place you can sit? <laughs> it's the great comedy word, parapet. <laughs> yeah. And I always say, if at that moment when you uh, when you put your you have a a flagon of mead, whatever that is, <laughs> and you put your legs up on a on a table and watch the sun setting over the Atlantic, and just as you're about to think how relaxing this is, remember part of this deal is you can never ever be a performer again. Part of the deal is you can never, ever write stories again, write anything again, write jokes again, perform for people again. And that's a never. But look at what you get. And I always say, if you make that deal, you're the dumbest man in history. Because there is no second of sitting on that terrace that will mean anything to you. And it shouldn't mean anything to you because it's meaningless to you. What means something to you is being a storyteller. A little, is it a little hard for you now? Boo-hoo. That's what you're made for. If you had everything and new shoes and new pants, what, 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 what would any of this mean? And the answer is nothing. So you stay where you are. And you keep slugging away. And never, ever say again, I've had it with this business. You don't know what hat it is yet, and with luck, you never will. When he was actually sitting in the outer office waiting to see Bart Giamatti, Pete Rose could have benefited from a little pep talk from you. You know what? I've uh, God bless him. I've always been a fan of his, by the way, because just that also always seemed like a guy. I don't know him. I've never met him. But it always seemed like a guy who never quit, never stopped. Hey everybody, I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my Blueprint for Success, a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one -on -one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. Because they called him Charlie Hustle. He also knew yeah. that he stood out because he gave more of himself and he put more effort out visually than everybody else. And that's what brought to people's attention. And it's a metaphor for everything in life, any job you're at anywhere over the world. If you put out more effort than everybody else you're working with, chances are you're going to succeed and move up. Okay, so you leave the house at some point in time. How do you start your first days or months in the stand-up world? What inspires you to go on stage and do stand-up? Where does it happen? And who were some of the comedians you started with 
that moved you? It wasn't the ones I started with that moved me. I remember reading a book written by Alan King. He wrote a handful of uh, paperback books about performing about himself. One was, I remember, called Help, I'm Being Held Prisoner in a Chinese Bakery. <laughs> oh, there were several that were all good, but I remember I was 10 or 11 in my bedroom at home, and I was reading uh, one of those books that I got at the drugstore, and I remember that's the first time in that book, many times, a dozen times, I laughed out loud. I would put the book down or hold it away or put it on the bed and just laugh, shake laughing. Wonderful laughing. I remember my dad and I used to stay up late to watch Don Rickles when he was a guest <laughs> on the Johnny Carson show because we knew, and it was true every time, we knew that we would be heaving laughing. And we liked doing that. And so it was people that I saw on TV or that I had read who really made me laugh. And I knew... Somehow, I don't know how, but I knew somehow being a comic was a good way to be everything I wanted to be, which, as you said before, means you're the director, writer, producer, and, and star of your own show, and whether it's 10 minutes or 10 hours. I'm not sure if that gets to the, to the question. I had uh, the people I knew when I was starting out which was at the comic strip in New York. And uh, the people at Wallow, my, uh, my guys were uh, Seinfeld, Reiser, uh, Jimmy Brogan, Mark Schiff, Carol Liefer. Hacks. <laughs> <laughs> you know, for those of you who don't know about the comic strip, it was owned by... I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> it was owned by two uh, gentlemen uh, named Bob Wax and Richie Tinkin. Uh, and uh, John McGowan. And three. John McGowan, I'm sorry. They managed a young comedian who That's right. started there after coming up from Long Island in a group called The Amazing Triplets with Bob Nelson and... Richie Minervini? Richie Minervini, maybe. And that was uh, Eddie Murphy. That's right. They were... Their friend, Tony D'Andrea, was a great comic and uh, a great performer. And Tony was going on at Catch Rising Star... On a Monday night, the, the, these guys, Richie and John, were had owned bars and restaurants, and they were tough guys. They were a little older than us, I guess five or ten years older than us, but they, which is to me just like kids, it's just like a friend. But they, they, <laughs> they were tough. They came from a, a, t a tough business, and they were they were not shy. And I just always liked them. <laughs> I'm laughing because only they. Uh, they asked me to be, they liked me too, and they asked, they gave me a job as a bartender there. And uh, I did two nights there, two nights as a bartender. And uh, and I was thrilled, but I knew, I never said anything about this, but I don't know how to make drinks. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how. I, I, can, I can open a bottle of beer, and theoretically I know how to make a gin and tonic or a scotch and soda, but th they would never be exact, and they would never be... Equal or, and every time, <laughs> a waitress came in and said, uh, 
ordered, she put the tray down. And I like them. We, knew, we all knew each other. And uh, ordered seven drinks and, uh, you know, two Brandy Alexanders and three uh, Flirt on a Beach or something like that. And uh, <laughs> then, and you know, she'd li- list them. And I, and I would just say, I would bring back seven bottles of Budweiser. <laughs> And just open them there and give them to them. And they, we really liked each other. And they'd say to me, uh, well, they didn't order beer. And I said, tell them it's free because <laughs> I can't make the others. And they said, are you sure? And I said, I don't know. Tell them it's free. See what happens. And it was never sent back. They all liked They were all thrilled. And uh, But it reminded me because I did that a lot. I, can't, I still can't believe they brought me back for a second night. That's what I can't get. That because that was so obvious on the first night, that the, the the in the beer well there it looked like a canoe, and <laughs> and I remember saying that at one point John came in, but a little late. Uh, Riser had come in. He was going on, and he said to me, "I was behind the bar with my leg up on the speed rack doing a crossword puzzle," and he said, uh, "Hey, I wrote a new bit. Uh, come on in and see it." I said, "Great." So he. I walked in with the bar, and uh, John came in about uh, 10 minutes later, who was, uh, he and I always got along great. It was, uh, he came in and strolling, he's the the squire of the manor there. (laughs) He he owns the place. But he didn't, the waitress would say, hi, John, hello, hello, ladies. And then he looked around, and the first thing he saw, of course, was there's no bartender. (laughs) That's a serious sin, a dramatic sin. There's no bartender. And he said, Where's Larry? And uh, they they all just said, oh, Paul came in and he said he wrote a new bit and he asked Larry if he would look at it and maybe give some help on on rewriting it. And so Larry went in to see it. And John, there was like a five, four, three, two, one, you know, blue, green, orange. That's This is the, the greatest sin. So he blasts through into the doors there that had a little, uh, a little, uh, just a four foot area in between the doors that go to the showroom. Just as I was a swinging door there at the comic strip. Yeah. In many senses. <laughs> and he, he said before you could even speak, I didn't pick things up really quickly. I wasn't that fast on noticing things. And I said to him, oh, hi, uh, John. And uh, and he, he got out the, the, the question, where, where are you? Where were you? And he just, and I said to him, because it was so natural, I just said, oh, but Paul came and he wrote a new bit. And uh, he wanted me to see it, and I didn't. It's a good bit, by the way, but I think he can uh, I think he can rewrite and put one section in front of the other. And um, anyway, I might have said any who, any who. <laughs> and I just, oh, I'll be back at the at the bar. And he he didn't even react. He couldn't understand. Richie and John were great guys, but they couldn't quite understand all these kids from Long Island and New Jersey and Westchester who were wearing Levi's and sneakers and, and telling jokes. A few years later, John and I, who'd become friends, were... Uh, we're at a, another place, and we we always ordered beer together because he liked cold beer, and he and so did I, and we'd split bottles. And he just said to me, "We got to you know talking about this." He said, "Yeah, I never." And uh, it took me a while to understand you guys. I don't think I, I still do. Is that I thought, well, that thing with the like going to see Riza, leaving the bar, you know. We uh, he said, I I, I, could, "I didn't know what to do. I thought I'd have to take you to Jersey," and <laughs> then then it, it hit me a few minutes later. He didn't live in New Jersey, <laughs> and he wasn't kidding. <laughs> Take you to Jersey meant 
didn't mean and bring you back <laughs> from New Jersey. It meant, you know, go to that area around Giant Stadium. It meant uh, it meant recreating Aaron Hernandez. It meant yikes, and uh, at any rate, I. But that didn't. That didn't. Were you performing while you were bartending? Yeah, sure. Tell me about your experience and feeling in your mind, like the moment where you said to yourself, "I'm never going to have to." work a job like a bartender ever again i'm going to make all my money now as a stand-up i'm going to pay my rent and i'm going to pay my bills and i'm never looking back i don't know that i ever had a moment like that or reached a level like that of thinking i kept growing as a comic which really pleased me made me very happy you get to be an a act we used to call it where they could be uh then uh, an MC and start to get higher. Those were the also the years when comedy clubs were starting to pop up all around the country, and that was good too. But I and I also knew, gee, I'd like to be an actor too, and I'd like to be a writer too. And so I'm not. I remember Jerry telling me a thing, a couple of things of you Jerry, know, they Jerry made, Seinfeld. Yeah, and then saying, you know, hey, this is this is great. They made you an A act now, and and uh, he was really proud of that and pleased with that night and I said, oh, all right. And he knew with me, too, that he'd look at me and say, you know, you're really not hearing that, are you? You really don't understand what that means. Well, I did maybe, but I didn't. And I, I just kept doing. There's still a lot for me to learn, but I just kept working as a comic and getting all the stories about what working as a comic means and loving it, really loving it. Never being embarrassed or shy about anything, even the jobs that didn't go well. I was just recalling there was one in Ottawa, in Canada, where they kept you at a at a motel. All the comics would they bring you up, and uh, I think it was called the East Wind uh, Motel, and it wasn't a nice place at all. It was like a single room occupancy, which is uh, a guy died next to me in the next room. And but you don't think of these things. I never I never thought of. Well, we we didn't even know at the time. You could just call the owner and just say, "I can't do this." You know, you got to put me in someplace decent. We just stayed there. It's the kind of place where, and Jerry's room too. They put us all in the same room, week after week. It had a hole in the window, and it was just a thin window pane, but a hole in the glass that was stuffed with newspaper. I never understood why newspaper became the thing to do. But no one ever said, can we fix the window? Can I get another room? We, you just sleep with your winter coat on. And because it was pretty cold in there. And but I never thought of that as anything horrible. Neither did Jerry, neither did any of the fellows who all worked there. We just thought, boy, that's a little crazy. We never thought we were crazy for not saying can you get me out of here? And so I loved all that. I never thought that I'm really, I'm really doing it now, even though I knew I was doing it now. So what was the, there had to be something that happened that after you did it, you noticed, wow, there's a lot more money and a lot more opportunity happening now 
than there was before this? What was that first big break or big thing that propelled you to another level? Well, I had some really good jobs along the way where you, where you think, well, this is pretty good. I was seen at the Improv in here in Los Angeles by Milton Berle and his wife at the time, and he was awfully nice. And they sat me down afterwards just to chat and get to know each other. And uh, he, he asked for my number. I gave him my number. And he put my name in, and they hired me. He slash they hired me for a big Western charity ball that happens in in Hollywood all the time. I don't know what this means, by the way. A circular motion with yeah. your finger in your hand. But it was in a big, big room, and it's where it was famous. I, I'm sure they still keep doing it, but it's where everyone dresses like uh, the Old West. But everyone meaning stars and... Uh, Stars, you know, beautiful women and handsome men, and they all came to this place. How did you, do How did you dress, Larry? I put on a, I got a western shirt, pearlish buttons, and to me that was enough. So I wore a pair of jeans and a and a, the, a western shirt. I, I'm not someone who looks that. I could do this. I'd love to do it in any any movie. I'd love to be in another Silverado, but it's not that. Wearing a cowboy hat, I look like a cowboy. It's not exactly that. It's it, it really isn't. I put on a Western hat, a cowboy hat, and even cowboys, even someone, someone land from Mars and look at me and go, uh, that doesn't. <laughs> and uh, but I did that, and Nancy Sinatra was in the audience, and she called her dad. She was very sweet and called her dad. Uh, the next day and said, I saw a guy last night and she said something very nice, the guy you ought to use to open for you. And uh, about, uh, well, a few days after that, I got a call from Jilly Rizzo, who was his manager, who was a, a well-known restaurant owner, and they were the best of friends, and I and I would, uh, and I rented a tuxedo and went to Las Vegas and, and opened for Frank Sinatra. This is the kind of stuff that you always want to hear. You, in any walk of life, you do great work. Somebody sees it. They talk about you. But what has to happen next is the next time that person sees you, you have to be equal to or better than the way you were with the last person. And then when people see you there... They talk about you to more people, and then there's bigger people, more important people, and then you have to do better or equal to what you did before. And so that's what you did. So take our audience through your stomach churning your mind of that flight to Las Vegas and from when you get off the plane to when you go on and meet Frank Sinatra and go on and perform as well. How does that go? Tell us about it. Well, it was pretty neat. I don't think I was nervous. I, and I would say it if I, if I, if I had been. I, I just I rented a tux and packed it in with my other stuff and flew to Las Vegas. And I was staying at the hotel that was then the Bally Grand Hotel. And, uh, and it's, well... Frank Sinatra's always going to work in nice places, but I mean, at the time, then I, I didn't have anyone with me. I didn't have a group or friends. I still wish I had brought my parents out. In fact, I can't believe I didn't do that. But so that, that night, I had a dressing room. I brought everything done. These are 
really big, nice dressing rooms. These are like little homes. It's like an it's like an apartment, but not a small one. And it's just a dining room and nice furniture. And uh, you know, when I started looking around, I say, you know, it was like this. And but I mean, <laughs> like this. Yeah, like shiny black stuff and really nice, comfy everything. And I hung up the tux in the dressing area. And it had a dining room, kitchen, bedroom. It was a nice place to live. But I had that night, that first night, and I went there early. I went there at 4.30 or 5, because number one, where else am I going to go? Number two, I thought that was neat. Look at this. I'm opening for Frank Sinatra. So I went down to the dressing room and hung stuff up and then just sat quietly against the wall in a plastic chair just sitting there. <laughs> and... And that was fine, too. And then I started to a certain point. I looked at my well, I, I want to get dressed, I guess. And this was probably about uh, 6.30, quarter to 7. And I just did what, especially what guys do, I guess. I just took my clothes off. And and I was going to wear, wear boxer shorts. And I was so I took the pants, you know, down around the ankles. I took shoes and socks off. And they were... And at that point, I heard a knock on the door, and I just looked around, and there was an uh, the door opened. There was an uh, an older fella, uh, looked kind of like a butler or something, and uh, and I'm standing there. There's no shirt, and I was going to change underwear, so the underwear was kind of down, <laughs> and uh, and the pants are down, and I'm barefoot, and I just you know looked over there, and he looked out to me, and just with a smile, and and just went. <laughs> like this to me. So he and, waved with his finger. Yeah, and and then then he walked away and left the door open. And I, what in the world is that? So I, so I I just did the Frankenstein shuffle with your pants down, and the underwear was down hanging. It was just ridiculous. And at that second, I got into the center of the room, the living room area, heading to close the door. And at that second. Frank Sinatra comes around the door in in his tuxedo and all ready to go on. And it won't surprise you to know he, he looked pretty good. I mean, that face and the blue eyes, it was just like everyone would say, just, holy mackerel, that's Frank Sinatra. And I'm just standing there the, the way I was, and he came up to me and uh, right up to me with a smile and just said, Larry, I just want to tell you, my daughter Nancy says you're a very, very funny man. And he said something, just nice stuff, and just said, listen, you're going to do great here. We always get good people, and don't worry about anything. He said, and listen, after the show, I'm going to have a little party in my dressing room there. Uh, so, you know, you'll please come over and join us. And I wasn't really even saying that. I was just kind of, oh, okay. You know, <laughs> and... I uh, just smiling, and he even gave me. I think you have to be, you know, an Italian star to do this, to be able to do the 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 pinch and the. So he pinched your cheek and yeah, slapped you know, and it, but <laughs> with in, your pants with your in with great the, ways though. I mean, there was with such your, a, with your yeah. boxer shorts around your ankles, everything, <laughs> and and he did, but he was so nice, and he said, you know, and uh, give me a little wink, said you're going to be great, and well, I'll see you afterwards. Oh. Yeah, you know, and uh, and then he just turned and walked out. And then as he's walking out, he said over his shoulder, he said, by the way, if that's in your act, I hope you close with it. <laughs> and and then he closed the door and I, we've just met Frank Sinatra. 
you know, you're in Las Vegas for the first time. You're going to open at the hotel there, <laughs> the biggest gambling place. That was that's all pretty great in terms of thinking. Well, I'm I'm in show business now, I guess. And he that night after I did my set, and it was they wanted an 18 minute set, and uh, that's what you do because if you're a pro, you know, you don't. Well, you just do it. And that's anything else is stupid. But as I would finish, I, I, I put the uh, put the mic back in the stand and just kind of nodded and smiled and waved. And uh, I could hear the band behind the curtain. They had the curtain behind me, only a few feet behind me that they were going to lift. So the band, the orchestra. Just striking up softly, but he, everyone heard it. And even the striking up just sounded... Like the coolest thing in the world. And uh, so I started to walk off stage, right? And Frank would come on without an introduction. I mean, please, who needs to tell him? <laughs> Our next performer you've seen many times. So he he comes on, and he's got his own mic. Somebody kind of darted off and took the one I was I was using. And then he, he every night, starting with that first night, he'd say to me, Wait a minute, Larry, come over here, Larry. <laughs> And I, I, I turned around and kind of walked back to him, and he put his arm around my shoulder, and he said, Larry Miller, funny man, come fly with me, come fly, <laughs> we'll fly away. And he started to and the band now with the curtain up. So I didn't dash off, but I, oh, and, you know, I just walked off and, uh, and then walked back behind the orchestra, behind the stage, and they're thumping it, but it's fabulous. And I came around the stage, left there, and they had a big table with drinks, everything there, liquor and uh, champagne and everything. And they gave me. I'd say, can I watch him from here? You know, just from uh, to stand against the one of the curtains there. So you're kind of on, not on stage, but you're on the on stage part and just kind of. Watching and uh, Jilly Rizzo poured a glass of whiskey for me and w handed it to me. And I said, Oh, thanks, thanks. And he just, you know, smiled. And and I'd, I'd stand there and just watch Frank Sinatra work, which was pretty great. And by the uh, by the third night, and he did that every night, Larry, no, come here, Larry, come over here, Larry. Which was so cool. Larry Miller, funny man, come fly with me. It was so great. And then finally, by the third night or so, I just turned to Jilly, who was standing there with me. He was just behind me. And I said, I guess I'm in show business now, huh? And he said something again. You have to be kind of cool to do. He, he kind of swirled what he was drinking, just said, absolutely, baby. <laughs> and you know, drank that and just handed his glass off without looking and someone took it and filled it again and I thought just yikes wow and then I went to the party afterwards and I just sit there on a couch like this against the wall and there was a guy there who wanted to know what Los Angeles was like to me and he was if you called central casting for <laughs> tough guy guy who owns everything including the building you're in or something. But he was a tough guy, and he, he was saying things to me like, I believe in a frontier justice. <laughs> that was one of the phrases I remember. And I'd say, and it's just me and him. And so, oh, well, yeah. And he said, 
you believe in that too? And it, yeah, you know, I don't, because uh, I can, you know, what does that mean exactly? What do I, is that something I have to do now? <laughs> and he, but he was just great to hang out with, and I was sitting there, and I, I, I had a drink, but it didn't seem like drinking was the thing to do there or then. And this is Frank Sinatra. It's a fabulous party. I don't know how many people. It gets about 20 people there, and uh, seven or eight really pretty women. Like, very, very pretty. Did you get a lot of action back then in Las Vegas? No. Not, <laughs> not, not in any kind of real sense. No, I was just... Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. There was never a woman anyone. that came up to you after a show and said, here's my room number, come up and see me. Well, no, and I now that you mention it, it kind of makes me mad, I suppose. <laughs> Shouldn't there have been? I loved it. I loved it every night, and I was there just for what, a week, week and a half, and it was just great. And that was pretty sure. There are fellows who've done all sorts of things, or they written with Frank Sinatra, or been in movies together. And well, I'd like to have done all sorts of things, but I don't. I can't beat opening for him in Las Vegas and uh, and loving it and being absorbed and and being liked I, I can't help but think as you're telling the story that in your early years you would sit with your dad at like between 11.30 and 1am waiting for Don Rickles to come out on the Tonight Show and laughing and how many times did Rickles do things with uh, Frank or come out and surprise Frank and there's so many famous things about when they did that and and the fact that you there in your small town in Valley Stream are watching it on your, you know, with a TV probably that had pliers and a rabbit ears or whatever it was. Yeah. And and then just a few short years later, you're yeah. opening for Frank Sinatra in Vegas where Don Rickles had opened for Frank early on and worked with Frank. That's just an incredible thing. And I just and yeah. it's amazing. And and how did you address Frank Sinatra? Did you call him Frank or Mr. Sinatra? There, there, well, there wasn't a lot of addressing necessary. 
you know, men are calling from, uh, yeah, one second. Hey, Frank, you know, there wasn't a lot of calling <laughs> necessary. I just loved being there. It was great. Fantastic. It was, then, it was, it was neat. Sometimes I knew a couple of people there who were working in Las Vegas also, and sometimes we'd get a bite together. After the after, you could get a bite at, you know, midnight, one, two in the morning if you wanted. Well, you know that. Everyone knows that. You know, Las Vegas is open late. <laughs> it is. <laughs> All right. So we got your first real big personal appearance break. Talk about your first national television appearance doing stand-up and that break or the first big one which i imagine might be the tonight show with johnny carson i was on uh the david letterman show several times before that and the merv griffin show several times before that those are all great and that's that's no kidding and the john davidson show before that but the thing i was very lucky the thing you wanted and every comic wanted and not everyone got was to be Notice Jim McCauley was seeing people at that time. Jim McCauley was a famous producer and talent scout for The Tonight Show. That's right. And he's passed on now, too. And uh, he uh, he hired me. Uh, he, he said you could do the show. Not the first time he saw me, but uh, well, the second or third time. It's well documented that Carol Leifer auditioned for the show between 20 and 25 times. Oh, how do you like that? Well, it goes to show you, you know, you just, that's another thing about show business. Do you stop? Do you go to a castle in Spain? No. You keep whacking away. You redo it and you whack away again. And there's, there's, a, uh, there's a good story involving an, another suit of clothes about the, the Tonight Show. The, the, uh, there, I, I was lucky. I did it a few times and... It was wonderful, and you could. And you, all comics wanted to get the the big okay from Johnny when you looked over there. There were several different things that happened on the Tonight Show, but we'll just go with three of them. If you didn't do that well, or you didn't think you did that well, he would just say your name, and we'll be right back. If you did well, he would look over and give you the OK sign with his fingers, with your thumb and forefinger together in the O, and your three fingers up like that, and you knew you were going to come back. And in about six or seven different cases, you were called over to the couch on your first time on The Tonight Show, like Stephen Wright or the late Skip Stevenson or Freddie Prinze. Yeah. Um, and But for most comics, they were just hoping to come back, and you got the okay. Yeah, which was pretty great. And then I was I was called over to the couch, or I think around the fourth time, and which was pretty great, too. You sit there and just you're walking over to Johnny Carson, closer than this. It's such and, an honor. It's the one of the greatest honors, and most comedians <laughs> never get that, no matter how many times they've done it, and and you don't know that he's going to call you over. Right. You prepare in your mind for a bit or something to say that you can work in, but you can never really prepare for what's about to happen, so take us through no. it. It was just wonderful, but not because I did anything. I was just sitting there, and he was closer. And he, as we, uh, as I sat down, he, uh, he, he, he said to me, "Good stuff," <laughs> and uh, with a big smile. And I said, uh, "You know, and thank you." And 
And he said, we'll be right back. And then during the commercial break, he talked to me about one of the one of the bits I did. And, you know, how maybe, you know, reversing this or doing that. And I just said, wow. And I, I can't remember what he said because I was just I was just buzzing that I'm talking to him and he's giving me tips. It's just great. Here's a good here's a good uh, story. I don't think anyone's ever had. He I was on the show again. Uh, well, a few times later or, or a bunch later, maybe 10 times and. I was thrilled every time. I never took it for granted any time. And in the makeup room there, I went back into my dressing room, which was just across from the makeup room, and Dana Delaney was on the show. And she was the, the number one, the star on the show. And if you, if, if you know, people know she's not only a great actress, she's just wonderful, but she's really gorgeous. She's seriously gorgeous. She's no kidding around gorgeous. <laughs> and... She was wearing what a lot of the women used to wear, which was a gown, excuse me, and uh, long white gloves and some pearls. They really dolled up. To You were on the Johnny Carson show. And he came over to me. I was standing there in the dressing room, and it was one of my agents and my manager there at that time. And just uh, and Johnny Carson came over. He was going somewhere. He came down from his area. And uh, he came in, just stood at the doorway there. She just said, Larry, good to see you. And I said, wow. And I just walked over and said, well, it's thank you. It's great to be back. And he said, I just came to say hello and uh, and this and that. And I said, well, thanks. Yeah. And, uh, and then Dana Delaney walked out of the dressing room area, rather the makeup room, which is right across from my dressing room. And she uh, she's wearing everything. She's just got made up in the hair. And God bless her. She's so beautiful. And... A stunning figure, and she's wearing the the red gown and uh, with the gloves and the pearls and the whatever and the high and the high heel satin shoes or whatever the thing is. But she just looked incredible, and she came over and just said, uh, "Hi, Johnny," and he says hi to her, and and then she smiles at me, and, and Johnny introduces us, and. Uh, and she said, uh, all right, they just a brief interchange there of five or ten seconds. She said, all right, I'll see you out there. And she, you know, she walked down the hall to her dressing room. And at that at that uh, second, Johnny smiles and nods, and I smiled and nod. And uh, Johnny turned to me and just said, wow. <laughs> now, only he could say that. <laughs> I'm not an impressionist, but that wow, <laughs> wow. And I thought, I just had a guy moment with Johnny Carson. <laughs> it wasn't anything bad. It was just saying, holy mackerel. And uh, and I said, yeah. You know, at that point, there was no standing on any pretense. I just said, yeah, that's who. No, God bless us. As I, as I think I said to him, I said, as my father used to say, God bless her, she's a healthy kid. <laughs> Which is what he used to say to someone with a really good figure. <laughs> healthy kid meant, well, you know what it meant. Let's do a little word association before we go. I'm going to okay. mention a name. Good. And sure. just tell me the first thing that comes to mind about them. Something short, quick, maybe inspirational. Uh, Christopher Guest. Is it possible to be more talented than that? I don't think so. This guy 
is so cool. I remember getting that first phone call. They were in Texas on uh, on uh, w- one of their movies, and he was it was him. And it's just saying the nicest things I've heard. You'd be pretty good at something like this. Would you like to come out and uh, join us? That was waiting for Guffman, I think. And uh, at any rate, I was thrilled. I said, sure, great. This guy is a great storyteller, a great director. His concept, I love what he and Eugene Levy do together in making an outline, making a sense of the story to tell. But boy, this fella, Christopher Guest, I, I, I guess I always want to look at him and just say, boy, you're really something, aren't you? <laughs> you are. And his acting skills, good Lord. Put on some of the deep characters and accents he does. I love him. I uh, hope, hope he does another one, and I hope he calls me on that same house phone again. Larry David. Well, he's wonderful. You know, I, I've known him since uh, the uh, we were all baby comics. In fact, he was an MC at Catch Rising Star who passed me at Catch Rising Star. And uh, on the audition night, this is a funny, talented, hardworking, super successful storyteller, performer, writer, actor, comedian. Good Lord. I remember in the early days in comedy, he in New York, he, he came over to me one night and he just said, you know, I think uh, you and I are uh, alike in a lot of ways. I, you don't have a... A picture either, a photo either, an eight by ten either. I don't, I don't like that stuff. And I, I think I said to him, uh, "Well, you know what? That's I yeah, love it. The more we're alike, I think the better it is." But in my case, <laughs> that may be just laziness. I mean, I haven't gone over and gotten one. I, I think I will within a year or two. <laughs> Richard Gear, he's so gracious, so talented. You know that this guy is a great actor. And it was a treat. He's always has such a kind greeting when when you run into him. It's a treat to work with him on a, a couple of those, well, those Gary Marshall movies. And, I mean, come on, he's wonderful. You know, even starting with Pretty Woman, you know, he and Julia Roberts as stars, at any second, you know, could have gone over to Gary Marshall and said... Oh, who is this guy, and why are we going by you know these things? Or he's he's in, he's improving this and that. But they never wanted to do that. They never thought to do that. They en- they enjoyed it, and they knew that it was Gary Marshall doing a a really good different job. Bill Maher. Oh, Bill Maher. We've been friends uh, since the early days. It's someone else who's uh, who's Re- relationships. Everybody. Yeah, yeah, and. Uh, but that's someone else who works his butt off and and talk about successes is, is carved out. Look at the look at the mountains he's carved out. So you know what? Sure, we used to uh hang out more in the New York days, but that's the way it is. He, he said, you know, come on, why don't we go out for you know dinner more or why don't we do this or that? And I've I've you know, I've said I'd love to, but you know, uh, unlike you, I'm married with kids, so I can't. We can't fl- fly someplace. <laughs> Gary Shandling. Oh boy, he's great. And uh, someone else who is smart and funny and knows how to look at things and absorb them. Knows how to take information in. He's uh, he takes in so 
much. He's a great writer with his own stuff and all the, also the shows and he wants to make. And you know what? Someone else who has followed the right instructions in his own head and heart and, and used them well. Eddie Murphy. Well, it's a great talent, of course. And uh, you know that uh, he's such a great guy to get get along with. When James Coburn was in that uh, that movie, one of the, the Nutty Professor movies, Eddie kept coming up. And remember, he's wearing these gigantic fat suits and or, or dresses, or whatever the scene is about. And he would say to me, uh, can you believe we're just working with James Coburn? <laughs> and I'd say, uh, the truth, I'd say, I know I feel the same way. It's unbelievable. He was feeling it the same way. That's a, that's a love of show business. And by the way, this guy, it's something worth saying about his personality on uh, those movies with all those characters, like seven characters and huge different, not just costumes, but, to, you know, f- Two hours, four hours, four hours to get in the the fat stuff and four hours to get out. It's unbelievable. And to sit in special wide chairs that in between takes just to get off your feet a little. And you know what? He never complained once. Not to anybody. He never said, you know, this is nuts. He just knew what it was going to take. And, uh, and it was Jack Nicholson who uh, won the Academy Award for Best Actor that year, who said in his interviews backstage with all the reporters, he said, this is wonderful, but the best actor this year was Eddie Murphy and Nutty Professor. Finally, Jerry Seinfeld. Well, I love him. He's my dear friend, and uh, I'm his. This is, a, this is a guy whose gifts are strong, they're huge, and just who doesn't, same thing, doesn't know how to to stop and doesn't want to. Look what he's built for crying out loud. It it seems obvious, but that's a lot. And that he's built. That's that's also a a career where you want to go, and uh, he's smart, he's got good advice, and he's learned many good lessons. He knows how to pass on many good lessons. In fact, when I was on his show, he said to me, you know, by the second day of rehearsals, I... And you're trying everything, you know. As as an actor on that show, you're doing doing you know, takes and moving your head and doing chimp flips. You're doing anything <laughs> you can. And he said to me on the second or third day, you know what? It's going great, but it's you don't need to do all that all that stuff. Just you just say the words and and be there. And you know what? Your stuff will take you right where you want to go. And I said, how do you like that? That sounds exactly right. And it was. Fantastic. Your proudest moment in show business. Everything I'm doing well, the next job I have, this is a proud moment. Because of what leads up to it and what we're doing. And I've had some, in the world of jobs, being on sets and being for movies and TV, I've been in... Very lucky and very happy doing some very good jobs. I'm not sure proudest moment. I've won a couple of awards, and that's nice, but it's not, wow, I'm so proud of that. I guess I meant what I said. I'm proud 
we're together now, but then I'll go home and get ready to pick up one of my kids at school, which is a great moment. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening to the podcast. I want to talk to you about an amazing documentary that I worked on a few years back called I Killed JFK, which was unlike anything I ever did in my life. It centered on a man who'd been in prison for 30 years, who's the only person in history to have admitted to killing Kennedy, and his story is unbelievable. He started as a runner for the mob. He was hired to drive two hitmen from that city around Dallas, and he ended up being the guy who calibrated their weapons. And he was there that day with one of his own and took the fatal shot that killed John F. Kennedy on the grassy knoll. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere else except on this documentary. So go to barrycats.com to the merch page and buy the documentary with the rare interviews of the five greatest historical experts in the world, many of which you'll hear on the next three weeks of podcasts. So just go to barrycats.com, the merch page, pick up the documentary and interviews, and I guarantee it will reverse the way you feel about what happened that day in 1963 and change your opinion of the government and how it works and alter the way you think about things forever. Lastly, I want to talk to you about something really impactful and involves something really close to my heart, self-education. You see, throughout my life, I realized that every success I've ever achieved in my career has come from the education I received from my experiences in the business. And I truly believe that we all have the knowledge inside of us that others would kill for. And by sharing that, we can open up an entirely new world of possibilities for ourselves. That's why I'm so excited to tell you that I've partnered up with my friend Tony Robbins, who's been number one in this field for 40 years. Along with his team of experts, Dean Graziosi and Russell Brunson, they'll show you how to take that valuable knowledge in your mind and turn it into an incredibly profitable mastermind workshop or event, just like they have and continue to do in their careers. And they're launching a new training program that's literally changing people's lives by helping people like you be a part of this $129 billion a year business. So it's an incredible opportunity for someone like yourself to build your own business, share your knowledge, and help and serve people in a huge way with the guidance of Tony Robbins the best in the business. He's actually going to teach people like you how to make big money and build a successful business. So if you're ready to take your life to the next level, they're doing a free live training session today at barrykbb.com. That's B-A-R-R-Y-K-B-B.com. Look, I've done over 440 free podcast episodes of Industry Standard. And because of your incredible response, it's reinforced my belief that we're morally obligated to share and pass on our knowledge with the world and help other people in those ways. I truly believe this. And I really love this groundbreaking training program and how it can turn your knowledge into an extraordinary amount of money. So just go to barrykbb.com, that's B-A-R-R-Y-K-B-B.com, to this free training session with the best in the business, Tony Robbins. I guarantee you, it will change your life forever. 
As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get out the money Drop that fancy car All the people love you you're going for Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over So it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley Fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.